Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and this tape is a special teaching that I did on television, and we are taking the teaching directly from the television. Therefore, you may hear some statements that may sound not like a typical cassette that I put out, but I believe that if you will listen, you'll still be able to get the message and that it will be a blessing to you. Welcome to our Monday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. Today I'm going to begin a brand new teaching, and actually I've never offered this anywhere except in our Colorado Bible College, but what I'm going to be doing is just kind of starting the first four to eight lessons that I teach in our Bible school, and it's all about the integrity of God's Word. We actually call this teaching a sure foundation, because I really believe that the way you view God's Word determines how you're going to relate to God. It determines your faith. The Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the truth is that our society today does not really honor and esteem God's Word. They don't place the value on it that they should. And as a result, that devaluation of the Word has crept into the church. And there are a tremendous amount of people who call themselves Christians. There's probably people watching this program right now who claim to be a Christian. If somebody said, oh, do you believe in the Bible? Oh, yes, I believe the Bible is God's Word. But when it comes right down to it, you don't understand or fully value the Word of God the way that you should. And if Satan can attack the Word of God and get you to even doubt it to any degree at all, then it's like your foundation. Everything is going to crack. It'll fall apart. Everything is built upon the way you view God's Word. So in our uh, Colorado Bible College, or Karis Bible College, we just changed the name so that it'll match all of our international Bible colleges. But in our Bible College, the very first thing I do for eight lessons is just start talking about the integrity of God's Word and making sure that every person that comes has the right attitude towards the Word of God. This isn't something that you just accept completely on faith. The Word of God itself teaches about its own integrity. The Word of God gives us instruction and tells us how important the Word of God is in our life. And so this is what we're going to do for a period of time here is just take some scriptures and specifically we're going to focus on what Jesus said about how important the Word of God is in your life. And if you can uh, accept the values the attitudes that are taught from the Word of God about itself. And if you will accept this, I guarantee you, it will make a huge difference in your life. It will propel you in the direction of change and maturity and growth in the Christian life. And again, I want to say, before I even get very far into this, that a lot of Christians, I don't know that I could say the majority, but certainly close to 50%, somewhere, a lot of Christians today they believe in the Word of God, but they believe it is a vague representation of what God really wanted to say. They believe that it's been corrupted by men, that men have mistranslated it, that it was written by man, etc. And that is not what the Word of God teaches about itself. The Word of God teaches that men wrote as they were inspired and moved upon supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there's a whole other realm here that I could go into. I'm not going to go into this because it's already been done by other people and it's just not uh, one of the things that I've ever done. I don't have a real flair for it. But there is a, a system of theology called apologetics where people actually go into and they take, I mean, just multitudes of facts and prove intellectually, logically, the infallibility of God's Word. Uh, an example of what I'm talking about, I'm not going to go into detail on this, but an example, they'll talk about how that to prove that this was written by God speaking through men and not just men who made errors and therefore we have to pick and choose and say, well, I believe that this was God and this was man and stuff, but to, to uh, do away with that kind of logic, there are people that actually spend their entire ministry and there are books written by this about this where people go in and show for instance, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies spoken in the Word of God that were fulfilled so, I mean, perfectly down to the very last detail that there is no doubt that they had to be God-breathed, God-inspired. They go down and talk about how that, you know, science has come along, such branches of science as archaeology. At one time, they've nearly always challenged 
what the Bible says about certain people groups, about certain locations, and they say that these places didn't really exist, and uh, they challenge the biblical record. And there's a lot of people today that actually have put more faith in what we call science, whether it's archaeology, mathematics, whether it's uh, medicine, whether it's all of these kind of things, historians, and they, they challenge the record of the Bible. And there are, I mean, hundreds of cases of modern science challenging the accuracy of the Bible, and yet over time, they have all been proven to be wrong, and the Word of God has been proven to be right. For instance, there was a lot of times that people were trans, uh, doubting the translations. We don't have the original manuscripts that, say, for instance, the New Testament was written in. And what we have is copies of copies that we base our English translations on. And because of that, intellectuals have challenged and assaulted the Word of God and said it's not accurate, and therefore we can't trust it, we can't believe it. And for a period of time, you know, it was a matter of, well, this is what they say, here's what the people who adhere to the Bible say, which one is true. And then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. They went back and found the Dead Sea Scrolls and went to manuscripts that were, I mean, like uh, very ancient compared to the modern uh, manuscripts that our translations were based on. And when they went back and compared them, I mean, out of the entire Bible, there was something like a thousand differences. And the differences were that when a person wrote a letter, they didn't totally finish the stroke, and it was a little bit debatable. But if you go back and check the differences that had any substance, whether a word was misspelled or a different word substituted uh, in the book of Isaiah, I, again, see, this is the reason I leave this to someone else is because I hadn't studied this and I don't know the details. But in the book of Isaiah, out of supposedly hundreds of possible differences, things that could have made any difference were down to about five, and when you studied them out, they were explained, and it basically confirmed that the manuscripts we had, even though they were second or third generation removed from the original, they verified the uh, accuracy of the Word in a way that there was no doubt God could have been behind it. For instance, some of the ancient manuscripts that we have, the Iliad, uh, manuscripts, you know, by Homer and all of these ancient manuscripts, there are thousands of times more manuscripts of the Word of God than there are these classical Greek uh, manuscripts. And the fact that all of these multiple thousands of manuscripts only vary minutely is a tremendous testimony to the fact that this isn't just a book about God, but this is a God-breathed book it's inspired by God, and it carries more weight than any other book, any other writing that you could ever have. This isn't people writing their opinions about God. This is God communicating to His people through people. And He inspired them, supernaturally control this. So again, I say that there's a whole realm of uh, the Christian church. They call it apologetics, where they go into detail and show you all these things. That's not my point. But I'm trying to arrive at the same conclusion, and that is that the Word of God is not fallible. It is infallible. It is written by God. Now, there is no doubt that there are certain things in here that some... There's probably people watching this program or listening by radio who are saying, oh, no, there's thousands of mistakes in the Word of God. Well, I'll admit this, that like the King James Bible, the, one, the translation that I use spells music, M-U-S-I-C-K. And people say, so that's wrong. That's not wrong. It's just an ancient spelling of the word music. It's not an error. It's not a mistake. And they'll say, oh, but there's lots of errors in the word. Well, show them to me. And they'll, I've had people cite before in Exodus chapter 20, it says, thou shalt not kill. In the New Testament, Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. And they said, see, right there, that's wrong. In the Old Testament, it says kill. In the New Testament, it said murder. Now, those are two different things. And the Bible never meant that you can't kill because we kill animals to eat them. It is justified. Self-defense is killing, but it's self-defense. Murder is different. That's murder with malice aforethought, intending to do a per person wrong, premeditated. And see, some people will cite that as a, as a variance, as an error in the Bible. But here is a better interpretation of that. If you go back into the Greek language, you'll find out that the, it's more descriptive, expressive than the English language. 
And so if God would have said consistently in both places, thou shalt not kill, well then see, that would have ruled out self-defense, that would have ruled out killing animals, that would have ruled out a lot of things that the Bible does verify and show are acceptable. Or if you would have translated both of those things, thou shalt do no murder, well that's not the total intent of what God said either because murder, again, means intent to harm a person with malice aforethought. In other words, it's premeditated and planned. But there is such a thing as accidental homicide that is described in the Word of God. For instance, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Word of God made a person responsible if they had like a second or third story roof and if they didn't put a railing around it and a person fell off, the person who built that building and didn't put a preventative railing on there was held accountable for that person's death. Now, you couldn't call that murder, but it is killing a person. It wasn't with malice aforethought, but it was negligent homicide. See, there's a lot of things, industrial pollution that kills people. The people who did that, and they may not have intended to do it, but they didn't go to the effort it took, well, that would be held accountable. So if you take the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill, the New Testament, thou shalt do no murder, recognize that the Word of God doesn't contradict itself, put the two together and say, God, what do you mean? You look at examples in the Word of God. The Word of God is a perfect representation. What Translating murder or kill alone wouldn't have done it, but by doing it two different words in two different places, combining them, you come up with the mind and the heart of God. So this is what we're going to be talking about, is the integrity of God's Word. We're going to be giving you a sure foundation about how that God's Word is accurate, it is trustworthy, and if you expect to grow and succeed as a Christian, you need to get to where you are adamant about this fact that God's Word is Him speaking to you. So we've been talking about the Word of God and about how that it has to be the foundation of our relationship with God. Do you know, if the Word of God is not trustworthy, then that means that we cannot really have any authority, any assurance in our relationship with God. Now, I don't believe that that's a true statement. I believe that God's Word is trustworthy and we can be absolutely assured. I've verified this in my life millions of times. But let me just say that people who don't believe in the Word of God, this is the reason that they don't ever come to a place of saying, this is true. See, our society today has moved away from uh, absolute belief in the Word of God. And as a result, what is it, what's taken its place? Well, we have a lot of relativism. We have a lot of people saying, well, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. There are no absolutes. And it is politically incorrect in our society today for a person to be absolutely sure about anything. To have that attitude today is looked down on, considered to be arrogant, and who do you think you are? But see, the truth is that there are absolutes. God's Word is Him absolutely speaking to us, and because of that, it can give you a confidence and an assurance that is necessary for spiritual maturity. If you're going to be one of these that your interpretation of what's right and wrong changes based on circumstances, what kind of situation you're in, then it's like a ship that has no anchor. That thing is going to float. You're going to be like the Bible talks about a wave that, you know, you're going to be driven by the wind and tossed and you will be double-minded. Let not a double-minded man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. That's out of James chapter 1. You've got to have the Word of God like an anchor to your life. You know, I know that this program is seen all around the world, in Africa and Australia and Asia and Europe, as well as in the United States. And I'm not going to mention names, but let me just say that there is a president of the United States, a recent president of the United States, who claimed to be a Christian, and yet was renowned for his sexual perversion. And I mean, uh, those of you who are familiar with what's going on probably know exactly who I'm talking about. And yet this man claimed to be a Christian. And so he was confronted by the news media, and they said, how do you justify your position on such things as abortion? He was for abortion instead of against abortion when the Bible clearly teaches against abortion. And they were countering him on some of these things, and they said, how do you justify your position on these things? How do you justify a liberal position 
when you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian? And his answer is kind of reflective of a lot of people, and it's exactly what I'm teaching against. He said he believed that the Bible was God's Word, but he believed that men wrote it based on the circumstances, the society that they lived in at the time, and all of the values and all of the commandments and all of the uh, rules about how to conduct yourself are relative to the time. And he said, since we live in a different time, you have to interpret everything. And so therefore, basically, this isn't the way he said it, but it's the way I'm interpreting it. Basically, he just kicked out anything that didn't fit the way that he thought it should be today. In other words, he did not believe in the infallibility of the Word. He believed it was outdated, that it had to be updated, and that it had to relate to our times. And I'm telling you, there's probably people watching this program who say, well, that sounds good to me. I'm telling you, that is absolutely wrong. And you can sit there and say, well, I disagree with that. But before you turn the television off, let me just make this point. Take your life, and again, I hesitate to do this because this isn't the best way of doing it, but I'm just trying to get my point across. Take your life and your experience, compare it with mine. Now, I am not the perfect standard, but I'm saying in an effort to make my point, I want you to listen to this. What kind of results are you getting versus what I'm getting? Now, I am not perfect. I haven't arrived, but I've left. And I can tell you that at one time in my life, I was an absolute introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. Now I talk to millions and millions of people over television and radio. God has changed my life. At one time, I was insecure, and I had fears on the inside of me, terrible things. That has changed. Now I am a secure person. I am not afraid of anything, amen. God has blessed me. Love dominates my life. At one time, I was fearful of losing all these things. You know, at the time I'm making this program, we've been evacuated from our house because of these wildfires in Colorado, and there's a chance of me losing my house. And I've told a number of people the last couple of days, I said, we got the pictures that can't be replaced, and all the rest of it, it's just stuff. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm believing that my house is going to be spared. By the time you'll see these programs, you, uh, I'll know. I, I don't know at this time, but I'm saying it really doesn't matter. I'm believing for a miracle to preserve my house, but if I lost it all, it's just stuff. It's not going to affect me. I am not discouraged. I am not beat down. I am not worried. My wife, as we were driving away from the house, possibly for the last time, she said, you know, we've enjoyed these things. She says, I'd hate to lose it. We blessed the house and said, we believe we're coming back and finding it safe. But as we left the house, she says, it's been a blessing, we've enjoyed it, but if we lost everything, it's just stuff, and it would be fun to start all over and do it again. You know what? My belief in God and my belief in the Word of God has given me that stability in my life. There are most people watching or listening to this program that wouldn't have the same attitude. And I'm not trying to brag on myself. I pray that you understand what I'm saying. I'm bragging on Jesus and what he's done in my life. And I'm saying that because I believe these promises and I've lived them out, my life has changed. I'm secure. I am one happy person. I am a blessed person. Not only have I seen these emotional, mental things change in my life, but I have seen people raised from the dead, my own son raised from the dead after being dead for five hours. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen deaf ears open. I've seen people come out of wheelchairs. I've seen marriages put together. I've seen people harmonize that were at variance with each other. And it's all because of the faith that comes through God's Word. Now, you take what I'm experiencing and put that up against what you're experiencing. And if you are a sick, bitter, poor, afraid, scared, insecure person, and you're proclaiming that, oh, I don't believe in the Word of God, and this stuff is foolishness, maybe you ought to look at the fruit that that kind of a mindset is producing in you versus somebody who is living a victorious life. And again, I'm not perfect. I'm still growing. I haven't arrived, but I've left. I am not claiming that everything in my life is the way it should be, but I'm saying it is infinitely better than it used to be, and I'm telling you that the difference is the Word of God. God's Word has become more real to me than the Word of my father, my mother, my friends, a doctor, a lawyer, politicians. Of course, nearly anybody could say that God's Word is more secure than a politician, 
But I'm saying that God's Word has become foundational in my life, and look at the fruit that it's producing. And some of you think, well, you just got your head in the sand. Well, why don't you stick your head in the sand if it's going to set you free and raise your children from the dead and bless you and prosper you? Man, get alive. Wise up. Recognize that if what you're doing isn't working, then maybe you ought to change. Amen? And if what I'm doing is working, then maybe you ought to leave me alone and come over to my side. Man, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, but I'm trying to tell you that our society today has become so intellectual, so sophisticated, that we think you're absolutely stupid to just believe in the Word of God and trust that as the foundation and base your life on these promises that were written thousands of years ago. Well, I'm telling you that I'm one person who's done that. And I haven't done it perfectly, so therefore I may not have perfect results. But to the degree that I have based my life on the Word of God, it is working. It is changing me. It is setting me free. Now, you can sit here and argue doctrine, and you can go back and try and show me something that you read and what this person said, and you can come at me any way you want to, but you cannot change what has happened in my life. You're going to have to come out and call me a liar if you say that what I'm saying about my son being raised from the dead, multiple people being raised from the dead, blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being opened, people coming out of wheelchair, my own deliverance from fear, shame, embarrassment, hurt, pain. You're gonna, you can sit there and argue with my doctor and all you want to, but I'm telling you my personal experience. This is my testimony that my faith, my absolute assurance in God's Word as being true has revolutionized my life, and I credit any good in my life. My salvation, my deliverance, joy, peace, my security, the miracles that I see, I credit it all to God's Word. You can sit there with an argument, but a person with an argument is never going to win against a person with an experience. I have experienced God's Word. It works. It's real. You're too late to tell me that the Word God's wrong and that it's all mistranslated, and it didn't mean this because I've lived it. I've lived those verses. And I'm just encouraging you. This is what I'm going to do all of this week, is I'm going to get into some scriptures, specifically where Jesus was talking about the importance of the Word, and we're going to lay a sure foundation. We're going to show you that your attitude towards the Word of God really determines whether you succeed or fail. It really does. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If Satan can attack God's Word and get you to doubt the accuracy and the infallibility of God's Word, well, then he can get you to doubt God. And so this is what we're dealing with this week, and I tell you, I think it's going to change your life. I know that today I've, I've done a lot of personal things, but I just felt led. Paul did this on occasion. He didn't do it very often, but sometimes he would say, use me as an example. And he says, I'm speaking like a lost man would speak, but here's the way it is. Well, I've used some carnal reasoning today to just try and push you to a position of believing that God's Word is true. We're going to get into Scripture. We're going to show you a lot of things this week that will really help. Welcome to our Tuesday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. Today I'm continuing to teach about the integrity of God's Word. We're laying a sure foundation for our faith. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the foundation of our faith has to be God's Word. We not only have to believe what's here, but we have to believe that God supernaturally communicated His Word to us. On our programs yesterday, I, this is what I was talking about. I gave a lot of logic. We talked about a lot of different things. I haven't got time to go back over that. But today what I want to do is to go directly to the teaching of Jesus and hear what he had to say about the importance of his word. You know, in the book of uh, Mark is where I normally teach this from about the integrity of God's word. But actually this, if you take uh, Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4, and I believe it's either Luke chapter 8 or chapter 9, it's actually the same day in the life of Jesus. If you were to look at my life for today's study Bible on the Gospels where we've actually put things in chronological order where you don't just go through Matthew and then through Mark and then through 
Luke, but if you take them in the sequence that they happen, you'll find out that actually this is recording uh, the longest day in the life of Jesus as far as recorded material. He actually taught ten parables in one day, and it's recorded in these three different Gospels. You put all of this together and you get this full picture. And in every one of the parables, he was talking about the importance of God's Word in our life. This isn't a random teaching of Jesus. This is something that was foundational. And in this one day, he taught ten parables where he constantly talked about the importance of God's Word. In Mark chapter 4, in verses 3 through 8, Jesus gave this parable about a man who was going out and taking seed and just throwing it everywhere. In verses 14 through 20, he interpreted this parable for his disciples. And he said this in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, the sower sows the word. Now, later in this series, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach specifically on this parable of the sower sowing the seed. But uh, today, all I'm wanting you to see is that the key to understanding this parable is that he's not talking about how to be a farmer. He's not really telling you about how seed grows and stuff. He's using a natural illustration that people were well acquainted with to show how the kingdom of God works. He said the kingdom of God, this is what it said over in uh, the earlier part. It says the kingdom of God is like a man who took seed and cast it into the ground. He's teaching us how the kingdom works and he's basically saying that in the same way that in the natural world you cannot grow anything without there being a seed. Everything grows from a seed. In the same way, in the kingdom of God, everything comes from the Word of God. Now that is a strong statement. And that's a statement that probably many people watching or listening to this program don't really subscribe to. Now you may intellectually say, oh yes, I believe God's Word's important and it's like a seed. But I mean, if you really believed it, let me just make some comparisons, some applications here and see if you really believe this. Are you trying to receive a miracle from God and yet you haven't taken the seed of God's Word, the promises that give you the faith for receiving that miracle, and you haven't taken that Word and you hadn't planted it in your heart? Say, for instance, that you're trying to believe God for a healing. But you know, the average person, there's there's a lot of Christians that don't believe God heals today, but even if you are one who believes that God heals, the average person would not go to God's Word and take the Scriptures and begin to meditate on it and plant the seed in their heart. But you know what? They would run to someone else and ask them to pray for them. Or they would just call out to God and say, Oh God, please heal me. And then wonder why they aren't seeing the results. Did you know that that is as silly, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I hope you didn't turn me off right now for saying that. I'm not trying to... Uh, rag on you. I'm trying to make my point and let you realize how important this is. But it is as silly as a person who would go out and wonder why they don't have all of the corn growing up in their pasture and yet they never planted the seed. You would, you would think somebody crazy who thought, why hasn't my crop grown up if they never planted the seed? Well, did you know it ought to get to where it is just as established in you that if you want to receive a healing in your life, you don't just pray and ask for it, run to someone else and ask them to pray for you to get healed, but instead take the Word of God that promise you God's healing power and you take that Word, you meditate in it, and if you'll plant the seed, then you'll get a crop. If you don't plant the seed, then you don't get a crop. I'm using all of this to illustrate that see, most people would say, oh yeah, I believe in the importance of God's Word. Well, are you asking God to do something in your life that you, honestly, you don't even know what the Word promises? I've had people come to me by the hundreds and say, "Uh, could you pray for me? And I'll say something about what scripture are you standing on? What are you believing God for? And they say, well, I think that the Bible says somewhere that, and they'll try and quote something. They haven't even read it. They just heard it in passing. It's something that they vaguely have in their mind but they can't go to the Word of God. They haven't taken the seed and meditated on it. The way that you plant the seed, I don't know if I'll get around to teaching this or not, but just a quick reference to this. It's not just like you read it one time and that means that you've planted the Word in your heart. You have to meditate on the Word of God until it loses its power, until it germinates and begins to release its life. 
And I can guarantee you that if you take a scripture that is promising you some result from God's Word, and if you meditate on it until it begins to release its life in your life, you will be able to say basically what that scripture says. Now, I believe it's beneficial to even know the chapter and the verse because that helps you to go back and meditate on it, but I'm not going to say you have to know chapter and verse, but I tell you this, a person who just says something like, well, I believe the Bible says somewhere, and then they quote a scripture, you know what, you're spitting in the wind. You don't know the Word of God. You have not meditated and put God's Word in your heart. So if you're one of these that says, oh yes, I believe in the Word of God, and I believe that you have to really know God's Word, and yet you can't quote the Scripture, you don't know the promise, you have to say, well, the Bible says somewhere, you don't even have an idea what book it's in, whether it's in a gospel, an epistle, or where it is, you don't have a clue. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm trying to help you, but I'm telling you, you do not know the Word of God. You are doing the same thing as a farmer wondering why his ground hadn't brought forth a crop and you had never planted it. Now, see, there's a lot of people who will say, oh, yes, I believe in the Word and I believe in this, but do you believe it to the point that it has caused you to meditate in it, that you study it, there's a lot of people who just intellectually, they were taught from the time they were a child that the Bible is God's Word, and so they would fight for that, and yet you don't live like it's really God's Word. If this is really God speaking to you, and if these words are like a seed, this is what Mark chapter 4, verse 14 says, the Word of God is the seed that the sower is sowing. If that's true, then you know what? You have to take this Word and put it into your life. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be any more perplexed about why things aren't working for you than a farmer who has never planted his crop uh, and then he doesn't have to wonder about why it hadn't come up. If he hadn't planted, it's a real good reason why it hasn't come up. If you haven't meditated in the Word day and night, if you aren't studying the Word, if you don't know what it says, don't be confused. Don't be surprised if you don't get the right results. You know, this is so simple, what I'm saying here, that you have to have somebody to help you to misunderstand it. I mean, anybody who misses what I'm saying here, your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. This is just foundational. This is simple stuff. And I know that some of you are saying, let's move on, let's go on to something greater. But I'm saying this, until you live it, you don't really understand this. I heard a story one time about a man who went and auditioned at a church to be the pastor. And he preached a message from John 3:16. Everybody liked it, and so they voted on him to become the pastor. He came to the church, and his very first sermon was on John 3:16. And the people thought that was unusual, but they thought, well, he must have forgotten somehow or another, and so they didn't say anything. Then the next Sunday, his sermon was on John 3:16, And this really began to concern the folks. They began to talk among themselves, but nobody said anything to the pastor. The third Sunday after he was there, you know, the fourth time he had preached, it was on John 3:16, And this time people were really concerned. And so they got the deacons together. They came and they approached the pastor and they said, Pastor, I don't know what's wrong, but you act like you don't remember. You've preached John 3:16 four times in a row. Don't you know anything else? We were expecting you to preach something new. And his response to him was, when you start living what John 3.16 says, then I'll preach something different. You know, if that's the way that we preached our message, <laughs> we wouldn't have to preach very many messages because I guarantee you a lot of people listen to the Word but don't ever go out and do it. This is the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to emphasize that God's Word is like a seed. And you can sit there and say, oh yes, I believe in the importance of God's Word. I believe it's so important. I believe it's the Word of God. But have you taken it and planted it in your heart? Are you asking God to perform a miracle in your life and yet you haven't sown the seed of that miracle in your heart? If you are, then you don't believe this. You may say that you believe it. You may give mental assent to it and say, oh yes, I believe that the Word of God is essential for a... Christian, but if you aren't meditating in it, if you aren't studying the Word, if you aren't basing your life on it, if you can't even quote the Scripture that would give you the promise of what God said about your need, then you know what? You do not believe in the Word of God, not believe in it to the point that it's going to produce. That's like a person 
who's saying, oh yes, I believe I have to plant that seed before I get my crop. But if you don't ever plant it, then don't be surprised if you don't get a crop. This is what Jesus is talking about. So we've been in talking about the importance of God's Word and how it's like a seed. This is what Jesus said when He taught on this parable in Mark chapter 4. He said it's like a man going out and throwing seed in the ground. And He really wasn't trying to teach us how to be farmers. What He was doing was saying that in the same way that the natural world has to have the planting of a seed before you get a crop, in the spiritual world you have to plant God's Word in your heart before you receive from God. God's Word is like a spiritual seed. As a matter of fact, the Scripture uses this terminology over in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I believe it's verse 23. It says that uh, you are born again, not of corruptible seed. Or excuse me, it couldn't be 2 Peter. It has to be 1 Peter because there's not 23 verses in the first chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And the word for seed here in the Greek that this was translated from is the word sperma. It's literally the word that we get sperm from. This is talking about seed in the sense of a man sowing seed into a woman's womb and having a child. The word of God is like that. In the same way that you cannot have a child without having a physical relationship with the man, in the same way you cannot get the results from God that you desire without the Word of God being planted on the inside of you. In a sense, you being impregnated with God's Word. Now that's a strong statement. There's probably people watching this program or listening by the radio right now who are saying, oh, I don't believe that. I believe that you can just cry out to God and God will move in your life and you do not have to know the Word of God. Well, I will admit this. God loves us so much that He is willing and wanting to move in our life. And because there are people who ignore the Word of God and don't know what God's Word says, they get into a crisis situation, they run to God for help, they run to a messenger of God for help and get prayer, God moves through other people, and yes, it is possible for you to receive an answer from God through somebody else's faith, through their intercession. God will use other people. Things like that do happen. But if you draw from that a conclusion that you don't really have to know God's Word to be able to receive, that's untrue. Somebody else had to know God's Word. Somebody else had to take the seed of God's Word and plant it in their heart to give them the power and the anointing to be able to minister to you and to help you. And I can tell you that this is not the way God intended that every time you have a need, you have to go run to somebody else and let them, through their faith, help you receive from God. God meant for you to be able to receive directly from Him. Now, I am a minister. It's obvious. So I'm not against ministers. But you know what? Ministers are to help you. As It says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about the people that are given to the church. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it says that God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These are talking about the ministry leaders in the church. And in verse 12, it says here's what they were given for for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, some people think that all of these leaders in the church do all of these things. But I believe here's what the Lord is saying. God gave these five things, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that through their ministry they can help perfect the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry and edify the body of Christ. And if you took this in context and just kept on reading, it goes on to talk about how that every joint supplies something and increases the body. In context, this isn't talking about that these ministry leaders, the pastor, the clergy, doing all of your believing for you and you run to them and they pray for you and you get everything through them. They are there to help you, to teach you the Word of God, to teach you things like what I'm saying right here so that you can begin to start taking God's Word, let the Word take root on the inside of you, and then you receive your miracle directly from God. 
Yes, it is true that you can bootleg a miracle in a sense off of somebody else's faith, but that is not intended to be a normal procedure. That is not intended to be the normal Christian life. It's just like if you are in a storm and your house has been built on the sand, it's not founded on God's Word, and so if your house collapses, you may have to run next door and get into your neighbor's house and weather the storm. But then you aren't supposed to live with your neighbor. You aren't supposed to live off of their faith. You're supposed to go back and dig down and put your house foundations on the rock of God's Word and get established and then withstand the next storm on your own. All of us need help from time to time. So I'm not saying that you don't ever get help from somebody else. But I am saying that if you reject this statement that I made, that you cannot receive from God a miracle without the Word of God in your life any more than a woman can have a child without having a physical relationship with a man. If you reject that statement saying, oh no, I don't believe I have to really know the Word of God. I'll just go to somebody else and let them pray for me. It might work once. It might work twice. You might be able to do that on a few occasions, but I can guarantee you if that's your attitude, you are going to fail as a Christian. You may still go to heaven. I'm not saying that you lose your salvation. I'm just saying that you can still go to heaven. and you'll get there even quicker because you will not know how to receive your healing from God. You will not be able to know, you will not know how to deal with the stress and the disappointment and the hurts in this life because everything that God does, He does through His Word. Simple statement, but it's one that most people don't believe. They certainly don't believe it to the degree that they act on it and take God's Word and meditate in it. The reason that God used a natural illustration like planting a seed in the ground instead of some social illustration. What I mean by that is, you know, talking about how, for instance, school works or how our court system works, some social system that man is divided. The reason the Lord didn't use a social system to illustrate how the kingdom of God works, but instead He used a natural system is because social systems can be beat. For instance, when it comes to school, probably every one of you watching this program remember that you sometime or another goofed off in school, you didn't really study the way that you should, you didn't do your homework, you waited until the night before the exam, and then you started popping no-dos or drinking coffee or doing something, and you stayed up and you crammed for a final and you learn the material enough to be able to put an answer down and pass the test. But here it is a year, five years, ten years after you've graduated from school, and if somebody was to give you that same test, you didn't learn the material. You just learned that you had it in your mind enough so that you could pass the exam. But in a sense, you beat the system. You broke the system. It didn't work properly. You may have been able to get a passing grade, but you did not get what you needed from that educational system. So see, if it was a social system like our schools, you can beat that. You can cram for a test, cram for a final. But you can't do that in the natural realm. See, you can't just ignore the right time to sow a seed and then to cultivate and then to put in the fertilizer and you can't ignore the watering schedule and all of these kind of things and expect to get a crop. You can't just goof off for six months and then the night before your neighbor harvest, harvest his crop, you go out and you just work frantically and put the seed in the ground and then it comes up and you wound up getting a harvest. See, you can't do that. You can't beat a natural system. And that's the reason that the Lord used a natural system to teach this principle about how the kingdom of God works. He used this principle of sowing a seed and reaping because you can't cheat that. You miss the right time to sow, and I don't care what you do and how much effort you put into it the night before harvest is due, you are not going to get a crop. And it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. You might be able to beat a social system, but in the spiritual realm, you can't just goof off and not seek God, and not sow the Word of God in your life, and instead sow worry and fear and all of these other things, and then come into a situation where you need a miracle, and all of a sudden just forget everything, fast for one day, pray, cry out to God, and get your miracle. If you're in that situation, again, what you're going to have to do is go to another person who has been faithfully taking God's Word 
sowing it in their life and let them help you and use their faith and their anointing to get your answer, you are not going to get a supernatural crop overnight. It takes time to sow God's Word in your life. You know, the things that I'm saying right here are revolutionary. This is awesome. You know, I will admit this to you that um, this does not produce as big a response as if I teach on how to do this and I teach on some of the things that you know, people could take and they say, well, man, this is great. I just do these step one through five and go out and, and get my miracle and then I can go back to living carnal. I don't have to seek God. I'm just going to seek Him to get over this little problem. People really respond when we have a how-to thing. But when I teach on something like this about how the kingdom works and about commitment and taking the Word of God and living it and sowing it in your life, did you know people don't tend to respond as well to this? because it may not be as exciting, but this is more necessary. This is like eating your vegetables versus eating pie, eating dessert. I can tell you, this you need this. This is something that could change your life. This is profound. The Word of God is like a seed. If you want a crop, you got to plant a seed. If you want God's best in your life, you've got to know God's Word. And if you haven't put that importance on God's Word yet, then you haven't laid the right foundation. Welcome to our Wednesday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. I've been teaching about the Word of God and how important it is for us to take the Word of God and base our Christian life on that. And I've spent a couple of days here just in emphasizing how important it is for the Word of God to be the foundation of everything. And we've covered a lot of really, really good material on that. Let me just take an example and illustrate this in one of the things that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 8, here's an instance where it says in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, that when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." And then in verses 11 and 12, he talks about how that there are going to be Gentiles who come to the Lord and exhibit greater faith than what the nation of Israel did. And of course, this infuriated the Jews when he said this. But the point I was wanting you to see is that this man came to Jesus requesting that Jesus would perform a miracle for him and heal his servant who was uh, dear unto him and he was uh, dying of a fever. Jesus said he would come and heal him. In other words, Jesus intended to go to this man's home. But the centurion said, Lord, I don't need you to come to my house. You speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And then he drew from an own personal experience. This was a centurion. This means he was a Roman soldier who had a hundred soldiers under him. And he says, I know the power of words. If I tell my servant, do this, he does it. If I said, come here, he comes here. Whatever I say gets carried out. And he recognized the authority, the power that were in God's words. And he says, if you will speak the word only, I know it will be done. And it says this in Matthew 8:10. when Jesus heard it, he marveled. You know, there's only two times in Scripture that Jesus, Jesus marveled. One time is at this centurion's faith. He marveled at how great his faith was. And it also says he marveled at his disciples' unbelief. He was amazed that a man could operate in this strong of a faith. He certainly, it wasn't typical. It wasn't what he saw in most people. And he was also amazed that his disciples could be so full of unbelief after spending so much time with him. But notice it says he marveled and he told the people that followed him. He says, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. What made this man's faith great? It was because his faith was in the Word alone. He didn't need Jesus to come and wave his hand over the servant. He didn't need him to enter into his house and do something. 
See, there's a lot of people today that there are all kinds of things that they use to motivate themselves, in a sense, to psych themselves into believing. And I'm not, I don't have time to teach on this, but you know, there is a truth here that there are things you can do physically that will, I hate to even use this terminology, but I can't think of a better way to say it. There are things you can do to manipulate people and get them into faith. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't use those because God is so intent on trying to get His blessings, His power to people that I believe He uses a lot of things that aren't His first choice, His best choice. But I can tell you from this passage of Scripture that it is God's best. He, The type of faith that He respects the most is the type of faith that goes to His Word and takes what He says and believes His Word more than it believes anything else. Man, now that is awesome. Let me contrast this type of faith with the faith of one of His disciples. This is recorded over in John chapter 20, and this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus appeared unto some of His disciples after His resurrection, but there was one disciple, Thomas, who wasn't present when Jesus had appeared unto the rest. And so it says... In John chapter 20, verse 24, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And in verse 26, it says, And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Now here is an instance where Thomas wasn't present when Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, and he said this statement up in verse 25, Unless I can see it, stick my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Nobody told Jesus that. Jesus wasn't present when Thomas said that. None of the other disciples had encountered Tom, uh, Jesus in between the first appearance and this second one. And yet when Jesus walked into the room, he immediately turned to Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger into the print of the nails. Thrust your hand into my side. In other words, it showed that he was God. It showed that he was all-knowing. He knew exactly what Thomas had said. And he offered Thomas the proof that he said he required. He said, touch, feel, put your finger into the print of the nails. And look at what Thomas did. It says in verse 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. There is no indication that he actually touched him or did this, but when he saw him and knew that Jesus knew exactly what he had said and what he had been thinking, that was proof enough. He fell down on his face and said, My Lord and my God. And look at the response in verse 29. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus, in a sense, said, Thomas, you're blessed because you fell down and acknowledged and believed that I was resurrected from the dead. But he said, there's a greater blessing on those who have believed without seeing. In other words... Those who believe the Word, those who believe because of the promises, there is a greater blessing, there is a greater anointing on those people's lives than other people who believe because they have seen, because it's been proven unto them, because they've been psyched into believing God. You know, let me just give you an example, and I usually don't do this publicly over television, but I'm, I'm going to do it today. I've done this in my Bible college where I can explain it. And I'm just praying that God will help you to understand what I'm saying. But, you know, there are things you can do that will, in a sense, manipulate people into a place of believing. And an example of this is that there's a friend of mine who used to travel with a man named Jack Coe. This man was a famous healing evangelist. And I've met Jack Coe's son, uh, who lives in Dallas, Texas. I actually met him over in France. And he's confirmed some of these exact same miracles. Jack Coe saw great miracles. One of them I can remember is when a woman had a cancer on her face, this big growth on her face, and this man just put his 
hand on it and it looked like he was massaging it. What he was doing was digging his fingernails underneath that growth and then he ripped that growth off of this woman's face. Blood spurted everywhere and he turned around and just slapped her right upside the face like that. And when he did, instantly her flesh grew over and it was a miraculous healing. Jack Coe saw great miracles. And this friend of mine actually used to travel with him for a period of time. But he got so mad because Jack Coe would deceive people sometimes. Like this was back in the 50s when they had a tent and people would have to travel long distances and uh, there were a lot of invalids that came to the service. And so my friend's job was to go to the people that were on stretchers, uh, on crutches, in wheelchairs, and he would test them to see if they could get up and go to one of the porta potties and relieve themselves. And he would put the people who were on stretchers, wheelchairs, and crutches who could get up and move, even though they had a problem, but they could move, he would put them at the front of the tent. And then the people who couldn't get up, of course, would soil their sheets, and the smell was bad, and they put them at the back of the tent. And so he was the one in charge of separating these two sections. And what Jack Cole would do is get up and he'd preach on healing and talk about it. And then he'd jump off of the stage. He'd run down to the invalid section at the front of the tent, which the people in the crowd didn't know it. But the, this friend of mine who tested them all knew that they could all get up and shuffle. They had problems, but they could get up and go relieve themselves. Jack Cole would take their crutches away from them and they'd start moving and shuffling. And the crowd would just go bananas thinking that they were totally healed. And of course, nothing had really happened to him. He'd take their crutches and he'd take their wheelchairs and their stretchers and put them on the stage and talk about how they were healed. And this friend of mine saw this and got offended, was leaving and saying, I'm not coming back. This guy's a crook. And as he was driving out of town, the Lord spoke to him and he says, but what does he do after he ministers to that invalid section in the front? And my friend says, well, he goes to the back and he sees two to three hundred people who are totally paralyzed, healed per night. And the Lord told this man to go back and submit himself and just serve this guy. Now, I am not saying that that's the way it should be done, but I'm using this as an example that people have a natural type of unbelief. They just are naturally skeptical. And there are things you can do to help get them over it. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be done. I don't believe that's the way Jesus would have done it. But nonetheless, it's an illustration how that you can manipulate people. You can say things that will increase and spark faith on the inside of them. And you can help them to receive by doing that. But that is not the highest form of faith. And we shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the level that we sink to. God wants us to be like the centurion who says, Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. So I've been talking about how that the highest form of faith comes from just believing God's Word alone and not having to have something else to quicken your faith. And this example I gave about how that this healing evangelist would take people who looked like they were crippled, but they really weren't, or they were crippled to a degree, but they could still move, and he would go and minister to them, and then he would go back and minister to the people who were totally paralyzed and see them heal. That's an example of how you can do things to quicken people's faith. And let me just say this. Um, you know, I'm just praying that God's going to help you to understand this because I don't have time to really explain it. And I know that there's people who just cross the dial and you don't have a clue where I'm coming from and you may misunderstand what I'm saying. But, you know, this example I gave of how this guy would go down, minister to the apparent invalids and not see them heal, but he used this to get the crowd into a faith atmosphere to where he could go back and minister to the people that were totally paralyzed and see them heal. Even though I don't believe that that is God's best, did you know that there is some valid exercise of that? And here's an application of what I'm talking about. In my meetings, I go out of my way not to use any hype, not to psych people up, I just try and get them to just trust and believe God. And I'm trying to go for this purity of faith. But the Lord showed me that actually, you know, most people aren't to that level yet. And there are some people that have sincere, desperate needs in their life. And because I go out of my way to do anything 
to encourage these people and build them up and get them into just kind of a momentary faith that there are people who I could minister to that I don't. Now, since the Lord showed me that, I won't mention this evangelist name, but I went to a service of a guy who was very famous. All of these supernatural things happened in his meetings. And I went to this meeting, to the very first meeting, because I wanted to see how this happened. I don't doubt that God does miraculous things. I believe it and I've seen it. But I wanted to see if there was anything that this man did to create this atmosphere for miracles. And as I went to his deal, sure enough, uh, he taught the Word like during an offering, but outside of the offerings, he didn't actually teach the Word for like the first four or five meetings. And he later did, but the first four or five meetings, what he would do is bring hundreds of people with him that had had their life changed in his meetings. He would have them start giving testimonies. People would get up and they would start talking about the miraculous things that God had done. And because of it, he created an atmosphere. In a sense, what he was doing was building these people's expectancy so that, I mean, anybody could have stood up there and miracles would have happened because the people's expectancy was brought to such a high place by all of these testimonies. Now, I saw what he was doing, and in a sense, he was manipulating those crowds, or he was getting them into this atmosphere of faith. My first reaction was to discredit that, but then I got to thinking that, you know what, there's a lot of people that they live in such an atmosphere of unbelief They really do need something to kind of jumpstart them and get them going. And so I haven't abandoned my basic uh, faith. I know some of you who've seen me for years may be wondering, oh no, Andrew's changing. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the Lord showed me that, you know what, I don't need to do things to discourage people's faith. I do need to do some things. And so now I've learned that when I'm in a prayer line, uh, you know, I, I can perceive when the anointing of God flows through my hands into a person. And used to, I wouldn't say anything about it. I'd just perceive it. I'd know that God's healing them, and I'd say, praise God, thank you, Jesus, and go on. Well, I've learned now that when I feel, and you can tangibly, physically feel the anointing of God, Jesus did, he felt virtue flow out of his robe into this woman who was healed in the fifth chapter of the book of Mark. So I've learned that when I feel that anointing of God, I'll tell people. And I'll say, man, here is the anointing of God. That is the anointing of God right here flowing into your body. And by me just expressing something that my tendency would be to just ignore it and go on, but by me saying it, it helps quicken people's faith. Now, they shouldn't put their faith in what I've felt and what I've said, but I'm saying the ultimate is for them to get like this centurion to where they say, you speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And that's what I'm trying to encourage you on. That's what this whole ministry is about, is about the integrity of God's Word, and that has to be the foundation. But I'm saying until people get there, you need to help them. And sometimes by you just encouraging them a little bit and they receive a miracle, that may jumpstart them and get them to where they can get into the Word of God and receive. So I've said all of this, I got a little bit off on a rabbit trail here, but what I'm trying to do is to make it clear to you that there are two different ways of receiving from God here. You can be like the uh, disciple of Jesus, Thomas, who said, I am not going to believe unless I can see it, unless I can feel it, unless I can touch it, unless there's some proof. He had to have something physical, carnal, come across his path to quicken his faith. And you know what? The Lord met him where he was. The Lord did meet him. The Lord said, Thomas, all right, put your finger into the print of the nails. Put your hand into my side. And don't be faithless, but believe him. The Lord met him at, you could say it this way, an immature or an inferior faith level. The Lord met him there. But when Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God, the Lord didn't just say, well, Thomas, you're awesome. This is the way it's supposed to be. In a sense, he said, Thomas, you've seen, and therefore you believe, but there is a greater blessing on those who believe without seeing, who believe without somehow or another being manipulated or encouraged or always having to have three dreams and two visions to confirm what God says. There's a greater blessing on a person who just takes God's Word and believes it. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but boy, this this changed my life. I was raised in the Baptist church. 
And in the Baptist church, they preached salvation very strong. But then after that, they, you know, they may have changed now, but back when I was a kid, they didn't necessarily teach against miracles and things like that, but they didn't teach for it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And their absence of teaching on it led us all to believe that God didn't do miracles today, etc. They just taught you how to get saved, and that was basically it. And when I came into the baptism of the Holy Ghost and began to recognize that miracles didn't pass away and that God was still doing miracles, and I began to hear testimonies of people who saw angels and visions and dreams, and that was scriptural. It was in the Bible. And I began to realize that those things were possible. You know what? I got to craving some of those things. Man, I got to pray and, oh God, show me an angel. Oh God, let, you know, fire come down and burn in my hands when I pray for people or do something. And I was praying for all these physical manifestations. And you know what? The Lord spoke to me and He said, Andrew, if you keep pressing me in this area, He says, you can see visions and dreams. And He, it's not that it's evil. It's not that it's bad. But he just told me, he gave me this exact illustration between the 8th chapter of Matthew, the centurion, and the 20th chapter of John with Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. And he says, it's not my best. My best. There is a greater blessing. There is a greater anointing on a person who believes because of the promise of God's Word alone and not because he's seen angels and visions and dreams, etc., And you know, when I saw that, I said, God, I want your best. Man, I don't care if I ever see a vision, if I ever have an angel come appear to me. And you know what? I never have seen an angel. I never have heard an audible voice. And yet God has spoken to me supernaturally through the Word. I've had people come up to me at my meetings and they've seen angels standing on either side of me. They've seen miracles happen. Matter of fact, one time... I remember the Lord told me that He was going to show me how supernaturally angels were in my meetings. This was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the Lord just spoke that to me. And so I didn't say anything, but I just was expecting to hear some testimonies about what happened. And I remember there was like four or five things in a week's meeting that happened. And one of them was that I called out a healing. A young man came forward. The power of God hit him. Boy, he fell on the ground. When he got up, we asked him to give a testimony. And he says that when you called that out, he said, somebody put their hand on my shoulder. And it was so real that he turned around and looked and nobody was there. And this was a rebellious son of a woman who came to my meeting. The guy didn't want to be there. He didn't believe in any of this. And yet he physically felt somebody with their hand and somebody touched him. And he gave a testimony about how he turned around, saw an angel God spoke to him. He came forth. We saw things like that happen. I'm aware that they exist. I believe it, but I'm saying I have never seen it, and yet I believe. And you know, the Lord showed me that that is the highest form of faith, is just to take the promise of God's Word and believe it. There are some of you watching this program who you believe in the supernatural power of God, and you know some of the promises, but the truth is God's Word isn't enough for you. You have to have two angels and three visions and four goosebumps before you'd believe anything. And you know what? If that's where you are, God will meet you as much as He can, but you know, it is not going to be His best. His best is for you to get like the centurion that says, God, I don't need you to touch me. I don't need to see you. I don't need anything except your word. And the good news is, man, God has given us lots of His word. We got promises. And brothers and sisters, if you would move into that realm to where God's Word became as real to you as something that you see, when God's Word gets more real to you than what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, then I can guarantee you, you've moved into a realm of faith that is going to cause you to receive the greater blessings. And that's what I'm after. I'm not after second best, third best. I want God's best. And believing God's Word alone is... God's best. Praise God.